Hello and welcome. I'm Roger Ream, and this is the Liberty and Leadership Podcast, a conversation with TFAS alumni who are making a real impact in politics, public policy, government, business, philanthropy, law, and the media. Residents of Washington, D.C. might recognize today's guest. We're joined by Katie Barlow, Fox 5 D.C.'s chief legal correspondent and a member of the TFAS Journalism and Communications Class of 2010. Katie is an expert on all things surrounding the Supreme Court of the United States. At Fox 5 DC, she provides expert reporting on legal issues and hosts In the Courts on weeknights at 11.30 p.m. When she isn't on TV or publishing articles, she's often seen breaking down Supreme Court rulings on SCOTUS blog's TikTok. Katie's commitment to reporting on the key legal issues of our time distinguish her as a leader in the journalism community and someone we're proud to claim as one of ours here at TFAS. Katie, thanks so much for joining. I'm looking forward to discussing your time with TFAS and your journalism career. Katie, thank you so much for being with us today on the Liberty and Leadership Podcast. My pleasure. I am so excited to join you. Well, I have to tell you, several of my colleagues uh, were thrilled when I told them I had to run over to the studio to record this podcast because they're all big fans of yours. And I think uh, a lot of people in the D.C. area, at least, will recognize you from your work uh, at uh, Fox 5 D.C., uh, as well as probably your other work covering very important issues uh, at the Supreme Court, the, the Federal District Court, and elsewhere. So thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, and uh, I, I I keep busy. That's for sure. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we'll we'll talk. Why don't we just start? I'd love to just talk a little bit about your upbringing, your background. I know you're from Georgia. Uh, uh, was it Augusta where you grew up? Uh, my grandmother grew up in Augusta. Actually, oh, okay. uh, my mother grew up in Athens, and I grew up in a, a town about an hour north of Atlanta um, called Cumming. Uh, but most of my family lived in Athens, so Athens is kind of home to me. It's where I went to college. Um, but yes, born and raised in Georgia all the way through college. Um, my parents were teachers uh, in Forsyth County. And um, then I, I went to the University of Georgia for undergrad, uh, which happened to be a mile down the road from where my grandparents lived. So um, that was a delight for me. Well, that, that's good to know because uh, my daughter, but more importantly, my three grandsons uh, live in Cumming, Georgia. So I oh, go that's there too often. Funny. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's, that's too funny. Man, that county has really exploded in the last 30 years. Uh, and the, the yeah. evolution, not just politically, which we can serve. I mean, there are books to be written about that county politically, uh, but it just it has grown uh, immensely, as, yeah. has, as has Georgia. Yeah, uh, the roads are all being widened and uh, they're adding new roads and new developments. And it's a uh, interesting place to navigate when I'm down there. But so sometime along the way at the University of Georgia, you discovered uh, the Fund for American Studies summer program at that time at Georgetown University. Uh, how, how did you come across it and what kind of motivated you to come to Washington? So uh, when I was nine years old, my mom married my stepdad and we took, instead of them taking a honeymoon, they took a family moon and they took me uh. to Washington, D.C. <laughs> 
Uh, and we stayed at the the Hilton right next to Georgetown Law School, which is also right next to the Capitol. Many folks maybe don't know, but the law school is far off from the main campus. Right. Um, and so I fell in love with it, got somehow in my silly nine-year-old brain that that's something that I wanted to do and I wanted to come back one day. And one thing you may learn about me is that once I get something in my head, I have a tendency to ferociously go after it. Um, whether for, for, for better or worse, uh, you know, I kind of shut out all other future options at that point and kind of went steady ahead towards that goal. But, um, so wanting, I, I always wanted to end up in DC. Um, and that was kind of every step of my path after that was, was ultimately trying to get there. And so when I was in college, my junior year, I was president of the student body at Georgia, a very busy, very intense year. And so um, I didn't get to spend as much time focusing on what I wanted to do professionally. So I thought I would spend my final summer in college kind of doing what I could to get ready to try and go to law school and to go into journalism. And so I was just, you know, Googling everything I possibly could. Should I, should I go into journalism? Should I go into um, something with politics? And most of my friends at the time were, were going to work on the Hill. Um, and, and that was something I actually was going back through old emails the other day and I was trying to do that too. Uh, and I'm so grateful that I didn't and that I found TFAS and I, I, when I found it, I remember the moment that I found it Googling and I thought, oh my God, a program exists that combines journalism and politics. That's exactly what I want to do. Uh, I'm going to apply and, and fingers crossed. And I got lucky and, and was able to participate in the program and it, that summer changed my life. Well, yeah, you, you interned at uh, WTOP Radio here in Washington, if I'm not mistaken. And I was told by our journalism director that you aced all three courses you took. <laughs> uh, that may be uh, pr- privileged information I'm giving out due to the Privacy Act, but he said you were a top straight-A student and a uh, great participant in the program. Did the internship help uh, prepare you for your career and what you've oh. been doing in journalism after that? I mean, that internship that summer laid the foundation for everything. I already knew that I wanted to do something with legal journalism. I was kind of modeling my career trajectory at the time after a few women who had gone to law school, practiced, and then become journalists, reporters. Um, And so I got lucky enough. I I got to WTOP. It was radio, of course. But I said, hey, I'm I'm a broadcast major. I I like TV, too. Is there anything I can do with a camera? And they started sending me around doing, you know, as much camera footage as I could on local stories. And then Dave McConnell, who was, you know, a decades-long Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Everybody in Washington knows his voice. um, Willingly allowed me to come shadow him. Uh, and he was so busy on the Hill that summer because there were so many stories happening. This was 2010. Um, so many laws getting passed that when Justice Kagan's confirmation came up, um, he couldn't do it all at once. And he said, hey, do you want to go, you know, sit in and listen on this and, and give me reports at the end of the day? And I said, are you kidding? That is literally the greatest thing that I could imagine spending my time doing. Um, so I got lucky enough to be there the summer that there was a confirmation. I got lucky enough to be put with Dave and I got lucky enough that Dave was so busy um, that he let me go sit. And so my job that summer uh, was to sit in on Justice Kagan's confirmation hearing. And I think I got Twitter for the first time for that very occasion. And I was I was literally, you know, live tweeting the hearings back in 2010. Um, and for me, I, that's what I do now. I mean, I just sat and live tweeted Justice Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearing. So that really started everything. 
Yeah, well, that's that's wonderful to hear. Uh, we, of course, love hearing those stories about the value of that summer experience. But it's clear, you know, unlike many students that come to our program who are trying to figure out what to do in their careers, you had a pretty set idea that you wanted to combine journalism and law when you were an undergraduate or before, even before that. Uh, and that's an interesting intersection. Uh, you've really accomplished a lot there. Uh, you worked after law school at Georgetown, you worked in a law firm and I, I understand did a lot of corporate and international work. And then, uh, how do you get back into journalism from law? Was that a, you kind of started <laughs> it while you're in the law firm, right? Yeah, I, um, I- wasn't the smoothest path. And I have learned that um, it never really was for any of the folks that I kind of was modeling my career after. But I worked at a law firm here in Washington, D.C., but was based in London, actually. So a lot of my work at the law firm uh, was Uh international in scope. Um, And so for a kid from Georgia, um, it let me travel the world and see the world in a way that I I would have just never had the opportunity to do. Um, And so I was very grateful for that experience. And I loved the practice of law. I loved my coworkers. I loved the work that we did. I found it interesting and um, engaging and challenging. Um, But I, I told them from the very first day that I interviewed with this law firm that I would leave them one day for journalism, Um, which, you know, in law school, a lot of people tell you, you know, just, just play the role, just, you know, act like you're there for the long haul. Um, And I, I, didn't follow that route and got lucky enough that the, that they took me in. Um, and so them knowing that kind of helped lay the foundation for later in, in my legal career after a few years um, where I said, look, I would like to start writing some on the side. I would like to start this podcast. Um, I got an opportunity to, to do this national political podcast. Um, and, and I also founded a, a website covering um, the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, uh, which is a very important federal appeals court. And and luckily, the law firm said yes on all fronts. That's not necessarily something that law firms allow their associates to do. Um, and then I also started doing some TV hits, giving some legal analysis um, on things, of course, unrelated to, to law firm clients at the time and had to run all of that by conflicts. But my law firm was very encouraging of me. And so um, I really was going to leave the law earlier than I did, but I was on a couple of cases I was really enjoying. And so ultimately left in February of 2020. And I had all of these other things going on. I had, you know, podcasts, I was writing, um, I was doing TV hits. And then, of course, as we all know, the pandemic hit, right? My timing uh, could not have been worse. Um, But thankfully, I had I had planned um, financially working at the firm all all six or, or seven years. Um, and I had privilege enough to be able to plan financially, to be able to, to kind of hobble through for a year or two um, with, with work, wondering how long it would take me to actually get a full-time job in journalism and knowing I would have to start from the ground and work my way up again. Um, and so luckily I had that preparation. And, um, you know, for, for a few months, I was just scrapping things together. I was freelancing and um, I went down to Georgia and covered the Senate runoff, and uh, I, I was writing pieces for different publications. I was doing TV hits. I was doing podcasts. You know, I was just kind of taking whatever I could from the house, as we all were. Um, and then uh, Fox 5 called me in to to start doing a legal analysis for uh, the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation, um, and our relationship 
Um, I could talk more about how that grew, but but that's really kind of how all that started. Well, well, while we're on that, I, it seems somewhat unusual for a local, a television affiliate to have a someone who specializes like you do in the law and and, and the courts. Uh, maybe not unusual because it is a Washington D.C. based affiliate, but that's uh, brave of them and and uh, and uh, very admirable that they have someone with your kind of background and expertise to cover those issues. I'll tell you, is the it- folks, the leaders here are so thoughtful and, as you said, brave and willing to take risks. Um, and I'm certainly one of them. I mean, as you said, that's not that's not. Um, a ready-made position in most local news outlets. And I'm so grateful for their creativity and their willingness to kind of step outside the box with me. Um, and our, our relationship started um, really as me just doing, you know, they, they called me on to talk about one or two things. And then I, I called them and I said, hey, I'm looking for a job. You know, is there anything? Uh, and, and at first the answer was, you know, no, we don't, we don't have anything. Um, and I had asked every shop, um, you know, around and I had talked to a lot of folks and really not many stations were willing to put me on TV without what's called package writing experience. You know, you need to put together a two minute package with video and audio and tell your story. And top markets just won't give you the time of day unless you have that for the most part. Um, but they did. And they they let me start doing what's called a talk back where I would a camera guy would come meet me usually at the Supreme Court or DOJ or somewhere. And I just talk with the anchors for two minutes and kind of build up that skill set, build up the relationship with our audience here. Um, And and then finally, when a freelance position opened up, uh, I was able to to have a little bit under my belt. Uh, But they still took a risk on that, too. And, And I'm not sure anyone else would have done that except for the folks here. And I'm forever grateful for them. And we'll come maybe come back to that, but before that, you were doing this SCOTUS TikTok uh, blog or or program, and uh, tell I mentioned in the introduction, but tell us more about what that is. Yeah, so I, I'm still with SCOTUS Blog. Uh, thankfully, the the Fox Five team allows me to to keep doing that. So SCOTUS Blog, um, I'm biased because I work with them, but it's one of the the um, preeminent sources for news on the Supreme Court. And SCOTUS blog started about 20 years ago with Tom Goldstein and Amy Howe um, as, um, and they became just the absolute source for all things Supreme Court. We cover every single case that comes before the court. Not everyone does that. Most journalists cover, you know, a subset. Um, And they cover every single piece of it. They cover, you know, the filings, um, the oral argument, the decision before, during, and after. Um, and they also have every single filing in every single Supreme Court case. So we're not only a source for the public, but we're a source for media outlets and reporters as well that can come get everything they need on, on SCOTUS blog. And so, um, I started working with them, uh, in 2020, um, as a part of all of the things I was cobbling together as their media editor. Um, and that did not include TikTok in the beginning. Uh, but our founder, Tom Goldstein, said, I think you should consider TikTok. And at first I thought, I, I really don't know about this. Like, <laughs> I, I, you know, that app is not uh, not for learning. Um, and boy, was I wrong. Um, there is such a hunger for learning and understanding, especially when we're talking about an institution that just is not as transparent um, as, as other parts of Washington. And... 
so I, I started doing those TikToks. We had early success. And now we have built uh, nearly a, a, an audience of a quarter million folks who just wow. enjoy learning about the court and engage and ask questions and are really smart. And it's, you know, a, a lot of Gen Z, but, but also all ages. Um, and so that's really fun for me. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, you, you've been covering the court during a, during a very uh, important and uh, contentious period. Uh, certainly, uh, there are calls for, you know, breaking up, uh, the court in various different ways, adding justices, uh, you know, where it's, it's been contentious mostly because of the Dobbs decision, but other, the, 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 uh, confirmations have been contentious for probably 40 years now. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, the way the court operates. Do you, do you feel that, uh, the court should be more transparent and say, let cameras into the arguments. And uh, of course that might put you out of work. I don't know. No, I, I have strong opinions on this. I um, in fact ran a a special episode of, we launched a, um, we recently launched a a TV show with Fox five called in the courts. Um, This is 30 minutes of legal news. And we, I asked the, one of the first things I asked is, can I do a special episode on cameras in the courtroom? And I end the show with a minute long monologue, um, admitting my bias in that conversation. But I absolutely think that there should be cameras in the courtroom. It is the head of the third co-equal branch of government. They make tremendously important decisions. Um, and the American public deserve to have access to that should they want it. Um, and there are a whole host of benefits. And, 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 and look, I understand there are arguments on both sides. Um, I think some of the benefits are, you know, bringing the court into the classroom, especially as more people are talking about it, we can better understand it. Students can learn about it. Teachers can teach about it. Um, advocates who go before the court for the first time, the, the court may be better served if those advocates can, can watch and learn a little bit. Um, and, and I just believe the American people deserve to have access to this institution. They deserve to be able to see it and not have to travel to Washington, D.C., um, book a flight, book a hotel room, then get up at the crack of dawn and wait in line and hope to be one of the lucky 100 individuals allowed inside the room watching the court do its work. Um, however, I understand that bringing a camera in the courtroom, the justices are hesitant. They worry that it could pose security risks. I'm not sure that many people could pick all nine of the justices out on the street if they were walking past them. Uh, um, perhaps more so now, but but not yeah. necessarily. Um, and that it would invite not only the advocates to grandstand or play to the cameras, but even, you know, um, I, I believe Justice Kennedy made the point when he was asked about this in the Senate that um, you always, maybe it was Justice Breyer, you always hope and think that you're colleague on the bench is asking a question because they're just trying to get to the bottom of an issue, but having a camera in the courtroom may at least make you think twice about why they're asking that question in that way. Um, and I hear, you know, a, a lot of the arguments against, but I think that it is 2022 and it is time to invite the American public into that room. Um, not too many years ago, the Fund for American Studies started a law fellows program, and we now have about 30 law students who come to Washington every summer, and they have clerkships, associateships, internships of various kinds in the legal profession. 
they hear from a lot of mix of federal judges and other people in the legal profession, but they also take one course uh, through the Scalia School of Law at George Mason that focuses on different theories of uh, originalism, primarily. Uh, I've only learned recently that there are competing theories of originalism. And, and in fact, in, after hearing some of the recent confirmation hearings, I was ready to say we're all originalists now, but we just take <laughs> a different approach to it. But uh, have you given much thought to this debate going on today about whether, you know, how, how we justices should uh, consider cases and whether they should look at some sort of originalism to adjudicate it or come to a decision in a case or whether they should apply some other standard in looking at, at how to determine the outcome of a case before them? Well, as a lawyer, I certainly have my thoughts about that. But as a reporter, um, you know, I don't, I don't have a preference or uh, a, a value judgment on how they do what they do. But I do think the most important piece of all of it is a clear communication to the public of what their method is, what that means, how it works, and how it plays out practically. And I think the American public is engaging more in confirmation hearings. They're learning more about these theories of the application of the law and interpretation of the Constitution. I'm not sure how much we talked about original, well, the, the concept hasn't you know, been around in its current form in, in for that long, but yeah. I'm not sure how much the American public even talked about that 20, 30 years ago. And so what I think is important from a reporter's perspective and from a transparency perspective is that um, we educate the public so that they understand what that means, so that they understand when their senators are voting on a judge who uses the originalist method of constitutional interpretation, they understand the outcomes that could flow from that um, and the outcomes that have flown from that uh, from the current members of the court. And that's what I see my job as both with both at SCOTUS blog and with Fox five is helping the public understand how the court works, how the justices go about their work. Um, and these terms that terms of art uh, that are kind of hard to understand or amorphous, as you said, there are different versions of originalism just trying to explain to the public the best I can um, what the rules of the road are and how they work. My, one of my favorite segments that we have on the show is WTF, legal jargon. Um, and it's explaining words like originalism and these legal terms of art that um, are purposefully inaccessible to a broad swath of the American public, yet they are subject to what they mean. Um, on a daily basis because of the impact of the court's decisions. And so I I hope, uh, I feel lucky that I get to do that now, and I hope that the rest of my career is um, helping to do that so that the American public understands what originalism is when a judge says, um, this is, I'm an originalist, and this is what I mean by that. Yeah, it's, it seems like there are a lot of people who don't understand that a ju- judge isn't always ruling in in a way that's consistent with his policy preference or her policy preference, they're making a ruling based on the circumstances of the case and what the law says. So they can't they jump to the conclusion that this judge liked the outcome of a case that he's ruling on or she's ruling on, and and that's not always the case. They're following the law 
But I, I think your point, your general point is so important that we need more in the classroom education about the courts, not just the Supreme Court, but how the courts courts operate. And uh, as the, uh, you know, having two parents who are teachers, uh, you know, I, I it seems like civics and all these areas just need to be strengthened in our education system. I agree. I think we have seen, even, even in um, the last couple of elections, the way that the media and the public have discussed a lot of what's happening and the reactionary headlines have betrayed just a fundamental lack of civic education. And I'm, I'm not sure that the, the two years of the pandemic helped us any with that. Um, but I, I just, I think it's so important. You uh, mentioned earlier that when you were looking for a position, you picked up the phone and called people at WTOP to say, do you have a job open? That is a great story and great advice, I think, for students who come to our program today. Uh, you know, we had 275-some students this summer, and many of them are here to kind of figure out what to do in their careers. And we taught them how to network, uh, how to find mentors, how to try to answer many of those questions. But that kind of advice of, of just call places and say, are you hiring anyone? Well, I'd be interested in some leadership advice or career advice you might offer to students today who are coming, uh, going to be coming out of college soon to kind of how to figure out what direction to go or find their place in the, in the job market. Yeah. Well, I, I typically give two pieces of advice and the first, to your point, um, it's okay to not know what you want to do. And it's okay to not have it all figured out, which is the opposite of where I was. Um, and and to give yourself grace in, in sorting that out and not pigeonhole yourself. Um, but, but in doing that, don't be afraid to ask to send an email, to pick up the phone, um, to people who are doing exactly what you want to do, to places who um, are doing the work that you're interested in, um, or to places that are, you know, doing the work, not necessarily the work that you're interested in, but are in the field that you're interested in and see if you can find a way to pitch yourself there. I talk to a lot of journalism students from Georgia who are coming up to D.C. and don't necessarily want to go work on the Hill. Um, they're interested in, you know, animal rights or they're interested in the environment or something like that. And, and uh, but they also want to do media. And so I, I tell them, well, go find, you know, three nonprofits or groups or institutions or, or whoever that are doing that work. And why don't you take a look at their social media profile, see what they're lacking and pitch yourself and say, look, I know you guys don't have this. Can I come do this for you for the summer? You know, find holes or opportunities in the places where you're interested in the type of work that they do and, and see if you can, you can carve out room for yourself to create something that they don't have uh, because then you're creating Excellent. value for them. Um, and you're showing creativity right off the bat. And don't be afraid to make those pitches, even if they don't have the capacity to pay you as an intern or take you on as an intern. Just showing that interest uh, is impressive to the to the folks who you want to be having that conversation with anyway. Uh, so that's one piece. That's and the excellent, second, excellent advice. Yeah. The, um, the second most important piece of advice that I try to give to anyone is – learn how to write and learn how to write well. Because um, even in broadcast, you know, we're on TV and a lot of things are off the cuff. Um, and you might think that that's not a huge part of what we do. 
writing is so critical to every job, personally and professionally, for the rest of your life. You will use the the tool of the pen to ask for a raise, to make that initial pitch email, trying to get the job in the first place, um, to communicate who you are, why you're doing what you're doing, and where you're trying to go. Um, and, and of course, in the law, it's critically important to be able to write simply and clearly and translate things for judges and juries. But it's important for, for all professionals um, and in your personal life, too, arguably. So learn how to write and learn how to write different types of things. Write emails, um, you know, write uh, copy for a pitch for a client, write briefs if you're going that route, write, um, you know, articles if you're going the journalism route. They're just um, it's important to be able to express your point clearly and succinctly uh, and eloquently um, for the rest of your life. And so do as much as you can to hone your craft of writing. Uh, Take writing classes. Don't be afraid to take harsh editors on in your life. Ask for multiple edits. Do multiple edits. Uh, It's just so important. Well, I I know you've mentioned that uh, when you aren't doing your work, you love to run, you love solo international travel, which is fascinating. You also love theater. Did you do theater when you were in high school or college? I did. (laughs) Okay. That must've been a valuable thing to do that has helped you uh, later. Yes. No, I, I was a huge theater nerd uh, in high school and there's uh, many, Many a Twitter joke about the theater to law pipeline and the theater to journalism, journalism. pipeline. Yeah. There are a lot of us. Um, but you it, must, it, did you did you have a chance to do like was it is it Ten Angry Men or or To Kill a Mockingbird or <laughs> play the, did, the role of a lawyer? Um, we did. No, I never played the role of a lawyer. Actually, <laughs> okay. that's funny. Um, we uh, we did some of the classics though. We did all my sons and and all of those things. But I I um, just deeply enjoyed that part of, of growing up and the experience stayed with me. And, and one of the happiest places I am now is, is thankfully now that we're all back in a crowded theater watching, um, that art play out before me. I just love it. I love it so much. Every time my husband's from New York, every time we go up, I try and steal away for a couple of hours to go see a show whenever I can. Um, so I, I absolutely, uh, really, huge, huge theater nerd. Um, and I, um, we live now on the corner, um, near a theater and it is just one of the greatest privileges of my life to, to walk a couple blocks and go take in, um, it's community, but just go take in a show. Um, but I also, I also love running. I also love travel. Um, I, not so much solo anymore because I now have a a wonderful husband who I love and loves to travel with me. Um, but when I was at the law firm, um, I would, I would work a lot internationally. And so I would, I would find a way to, um, you know, get some of my own time abroad and, and travel on my own a little bit, uh, or use some of the, the many, many miles that develop, uh, to go take trips. Um, and, and, when you're in your twenties in the city um, and not dating anyone, it's not the easiest to get your friends to take the same vacation days or to get the, your schedules to match up. And so I finally said, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go do it by myself. Um, and that took a little bit of courage and um, a little bit a, of a lot, uh, a lot. Yeah. Wow. 
but but then once I did it once, I it it, it it got easier. And there's so much to be said about learning to navigate the world by yourself. There's so much to be said about um, doing it as a woman. I think there are some dangers, especially internationally, depending on where you are. But um, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, I got to go all over, you know, I spent two weeks in Thailand by myself and um, went to to France and Italy and um, just really got to uh, Oman and um, I worked a lot in, in Dubai. So I got to explore um, the UAE a good bit as well. Wow. Um, so I just, I love it. And you can, you learn more about the, the world and your, your mind just inevitably opens up so much more when you can explore that way. And I was very privileged to be able to do that. Well, let, let me explore one more topic related to the court. Uh, it was, you know, this summer when the a very controversial decision of Dobbs came out from the court and other uh, difficult or, or uh, uh, difficult decisions, uh, I had a group of our students uh, together for breakfast and I asked them, I said, are you having really heated arguments in the dormitories over hot topics like say recent Supreme court decisions. And I got this response from a student that said, no, we aren't. We're, we're just listening to each other and hearing each other's different views on these topics. And I thought that's perfect. That's what I want to hear. Uh, but certainly that's not the case in the country today. It's very divided. Uh, there are arguments that the Dobbs decision would, uh, could perhaps lower the temperature a little by sending that issue to the courts, uh, back to the States rather. Uh, obviously uh, it's going to play out in the elections. It appears after, you know, some primaries this week that seem to indicate that uh, my more general question is, you know, do you see the courts playing a role going forward in, in, in somehow trying to bring our country together or is are the courts part of everything going on in the legislative executive branch that seem to be tearing us apart? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think they see themselves as doing anything other than, than, than the work of the court and the work of the law and, and um, letting the chips fall how they may after the decisions are made. I, I, I suppose the, the chief and, and the justices find it important that they, the American public have faith in the institution because um, as a number of them have said, you know, they have no sword, no police force, no purse, no ability to enforce their decisions, but for the American public's faith and, and willingness to abide by them. And so um, the public's perception and belief and faith in the court is critical. And so to some extent, I think they are generally aware of that. Um, not so much bringing the country together, but keeping the faith in the institution, I think is probably one of the North stars um, for the court. Not that that would, would lead them to decide one way or the other, um, but they do as a general matter or have as a general matter um, decided things incrementally, little bits at a time. Um, of course, many will argue that, that Dobbs was not that, um, but many argued that Roe was not that. Um, and so there will always be a debate over the substance of the decisions. I think um, that the court is, is ever mindful of the country 
being as divided as it is, um, but them still needing to, to garner and maintain the faith in the institution. I personally believe that bringing cameras in the courtroom and allowing people to, to see um, them do their work would help with that. But I yeah. also see the other argument that um, it could it could certainly hurt as well. Um, it, you know, having a video clip that you could clip for 30 seconds and making that fodder for a nightly news show um, could certainly stir the pot and stir the American public's perceptions and, and ramp up, um, as you said, uh, the divisiveness as we, that we've seen with, with other areas uh, of the institutions that, that we rely on to do the work of the country. Uh, covering the court as you have the last few years, uh, or more than the, just the last few years, but how, how good are you at predicting the outcome of cases? Mm. It depends. Um, yeah. We had a good idea that when the court took on Dobbs that they were going to move the ball there. Um, and after oral argument, it it very much looked like there were five votes to overturn. Um, of course, all of this is easier said in hindsight now that we have the decision. But um, Amy Howe, who's a reporter at SCOTUS blog, who is uh, quite brilliant, um, you know, wrote wrote some excellent analysis to that effect and is usually quite good at, at breaking down when it's clear from either oral argument or or taking a case on where they're going. Um, I think the same thing can be said for affirmative action uh, that's coming up this next term. The court is going to weigh in in cases out of uh, the University of North Carolina and Harvard about consideration of race in the admissions process, which the Supreme Court has said is acceptable as long as it's a part of a holistic review. Uh, but now the court has decided to take this case on. So it seems clear that they have something more to say on the topic. Um, it's hard to imagine that they would take on a more expansive role of the consideration of race in admission. So it seems uh, the court's interested in constraining the consideration of race or saying something to that effect. But, um, you know, we'll learn more from, from moral argument. But you can kind of glean where the court's going based on yeah. some of the tea leaves, but you never know. Yeah. And they may have a case coming their way on uh, whether the president has the authority to uh, cancel student loans. It sounds like given the recent news on that topic. Yeah. There was a lot of chatter about that yesterday yeah. legally. I mean, <clears throat> I'm not steeped in the, the legal issues about what exactly the department of education had the authority to do, but there was a lot of discussion about that yesterday that I, um, I found interesting. I'm going to have to read more about what the arguments are there. Yeah. And and what's the last thing I wanted to ask was about whether there's lasting impact on the court for, from the leaking of the uh, Alito opinion? Well, look, I, I don't work at the court, and I certainly can't say for sure, but I think we've heard from the justices that that's absolutely the case. You know, as I think Justice Thomas said something to the effect of you're kind of always looking over your shoulder, and Justice Kagan has lamented, you know, the – the public's perception of the court and, and how that turns. And um, I think something like that just fundamentally shifts the dynamic and the, the personal relationships of the justices and the people who work at the court. And it's impossible for it not to, when it's, you know, such a rare earthquake like occurrence, I imagine um, this term, the the clerks, you know, they have a new they have a new set of clerks who have started. Uh, the term is only a few weeks away, and I imagine they got a very stern talking to. Um, but 
it's also hard to to imagine that it not affecting the justices work with each other, you know, willingness to send each other drafts and and things like that. It just it's hard to imagine that it doesn't affect the day to day. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Katie, and, and thank you. We're proud of you being a TFAS alum from the year 2010. Uh, any parting advice you would have for students who might do this program in the future? Absolutely do it and take advantage of every single part of DC that you can over the summer and feel free uh, to email me if I can ever be helpful. It's, it's my privilege to help get back to something that really, as I said, changed my life. Thank you. That's very kind of you to uh, offer and to uh, share that. So uh, it's been a pleasure to have you with us. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you on uh, Fox 5 DC and reading you and seeing you on TikTok as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Liberty and Leadership Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, like, or share the show on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this episode, I ask you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us an email at podcast at tfast.org. The Liberty and Leadership Podcast is produced at K-Global Studios in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Roger Ream. And until next time, show courage in things large and small.